Hi, welcome to Summit Church. We are one church in multiple locations in Central Florida. We believe that your story, told truthfully, is good news to those who are near to God and those who are far from God. And no matter where you find yourself, you are welcome here. Join us in listening to this week's sermon. Hi guys, I'm Kaylee. Thank you for joining us today. In 1633, the physicist Galileo was ordered to turn himself into the authorities for claiming that the earth revolved around the sun, which we all know to be true. But at that time, the church passionately argued that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything else revolved around it. In his sentence, uh, it reads this. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by his holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine, which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world and that the earth is not the center of the world. We order that by public edict, the book of dialogues of Galileo Galilei be prohibited and we condemn thee, condemn thee to prison and enjoin that thee for the space of three years shall recite once a week the seven penitential psalms, one of which is Psalm 143, which reads, in your unfailing love, silence my enemies. So I think that's ironic that he was praying against them and they asked him to. So anyway, uh, that's Galileo. He had a contemporary called Ptolemy or Ptolemy, if you can't pronounce silent letters. And Ptolemy also had a, a way of calculating planetary models and his model had Earth at the center, it kept Earth at the center, and he could do calculations with this model. However, some of his calculations were up to 30 degrees off, which on a cosmic scale is what the kids call hella big. So to correct these errors, Ptolemy would add a factor into the mathematics called an equant. And that did help him get more accurate calculations, but the equant was different for every single one of the planets. And so the bottom line is that in order to maintain a model where Earth stayed at the center of the world, you had to do a lot of unnecessary mathematical gymnastics in order to arrive at an answer that would have been simple if your model had the correct center. So why was Galileo punished? I think because since the beginning of created history, human beings have had a very hard time recognizing and admitting that the world does not revolve around us. This Wednesday marked the beginning of a season called Lent in the church's liturgical calendar. Many of you are familiar with the season of Lent as the 40 days before Easter, where we're encouraged to fast from something, or in other words, give up something that we like or maybe feel like we need uh, for a period of 40 days as a time of preparation. We prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus at, at Easter, which if you're a Christian is, is like everything, it's the means of our salvation. And we prepare by humbling ourselves and realigning to his purposes for our lives. For my fellow history buffs, how we ended up with this 40-day period is actually a bit of a mystery. I want to read you uh, an excerpt from uh, Esau Macaulay in his book, Lent. In the first few centuries of the church's life, believers observed a one or two day fast in preparation for Easter. Some scholars think that this was eventually extended to what we now call Holy Week. We went from a few days to a week of preparation. One week grew to three weeks and eventually to 40 days. During those 40 days, baptismal candidates were prepared to be received into the church on Easter. That practice, by the way, of, of a 40 day period of preparation for baptismal candidates, that originated probably in 
early Egyptian Christian communities. That's not something prescribed by Jesus or the Gospels. But regardless of how Lent developed these practices, we can be certain that the early church took baptism very seriously. They thought it was a very serious decision. And so they spent this time of preparation requiring a time of self-examination and repentance, letting go of our sins to align our actions and hearts with our new belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death our sins deserved. And through his sacrificial blood, the payment for our sins was made in full. Easter is the biggest of the Christian holidays. We celebrate Jesus's resurrection from the grave, his ultimate defeat of death. And to believe the Easter story is to admit beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a center of my universe and it is not me. So of course the early church believed this was this time of preparation was necessary because it takes a lot of work for human beings to shift from the mindset they've had their entire life that I'm the center of the universe to God is the center. And so they prepared for baptism at Easter because to most of the world, the resurrection, which is what we celebrate at Easter, is an unbelievable story. And baptism marks the day when I say, yes, that's an unbelievable story. And I believe it anyway. It's your marriage day to your Messiah. For similar reasons, the church also uh, regarded this period of time before Easter as a time of reflection, not just for new believers coming into the church through baptism, but for all believers to examine themselves because we drift, we drift, don't we? And so even if you're already married to your Messiah through baptism, Lent is a time to recommit your vows. Do I still believe this story? Do I still believe it enough to relinquish the ways in which I've let the world start to revolve around me again. So despite being a church that is in fact a lot more casual, I love liturgy and I love the liturgical calendar because I think, I think we all need these rhythms in our relationship with Jesus. I know I do. I need these rhythms in all of my relationships. My husband and I, we, we love to make plans. We, we love to make plans for our physical fitness, for our eating. We like to make plans for cleaning the house. We like to make plans for spending our money, grooming our dog. We love plans. And around New Year's, we made a plan for how we wanted to reduce the amount of screen time that our whole family was exposed to. And so we thought about it and we're like, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give ourselves four hours a week for movies and TV. So that's time for what? An episode of The Chosen, maybe an episode of The Last of Us. I know that's a hard turn, Jesus to Zombies. And then, you know, either one full rom-com or half of a Lord of the Rings movie. And it seemed like a great plan. We loved our plan. We felt proud of our plan and superior to all the people whom had lesser plans than we did uh, because they clearly didn't love God as much as we did. So fast forward <laughs> to a week before Lent. And I'm chatting with some of my coworkers who are talking about the different things that they're giving up, the things they're fasting from in Lent. And a lot of them are talking about giving something up with their spouse. So they're giving up sugar, they're giving up saying negative things about other people, and they're all do they're they're giving up an hour of sleep so they can pray together in the morning. And I thought, that is so beautiful. I should give up something with Rob, my husband. So I went home and I talked to him about it, and he's like, Man, that is such a good idea. What should we give up together? And we started talking about it, and he's like, What if? What if we give up how much time we're spending watching TV and we limit that? And as soon as it came out of our mouths, we're like, wait, we've already made this plan. We've already made this plan. And clearly we've not been observing our plan uh, because we are great with strategy and crap with execution. We love, <laughs> we love to make a plan, admire the plan, hold the plan out, maybe put it on the refrigerator and then crumple it into a ball and throw it out the window on our way to the movies that we're not supposed to be watching. So 
If a plan is gonna work, it has to have rhythms. It has to have times that we check in, that we evaluate, that we redirect, how am I doing? Marriages can't thrive without those rhythms. Talking, connecting, intimacy, play, fun, adventure, laughter, vulnerability, rest, refreshment. Relationships, we need these in our relationships with one another and no less in our relationship with God. And the liturgical calendar gives us seasons and practices in the church like Lent, where we check in on how we're doing. And when we intentionally pursue God with questions or with adoration or simply wanting to be near to him without any agenda at all, it gives rhythms to our relationship. And one of those rhythms is this annual examination. Am I still in? Am I still committed to Jesus? Do I still believe this unbelievable story? And if so, where do I need to recenter myself around Christ? So the series that we begin today, which will take us up to Easter, is called Perspectives of the Cross. Our faith as Christ followers has at its center the very gruesome, very painful physical death of an omnipotent God in the person of Jesus Christ stretched out on a wooden cross. And as OJ said so eloquently at the Ash Wednesday service, in order to find life, we too must pass through death. Death to self in a thousand ways where we pick up our own crosses and follow him daily. The cross is the center of our faith and it is a blood-soaked mystery. And it's a mystery that I understand turns people away from faith either because the, the idea of an all-powerful God dying on a cross is just simply ridiculous, like if he's all-powerful, surely he could have figured out a different way to do it than that, or maybe it turns people away because they can't imagine a good God who would allow suffering in this world at all, let alone the magnitude of suffering that that would cause to their only son, death on a cross. So the purpose of this series is to, to begin to answer that question why was the cross necessary? Why was the cross necessary? And especially, especially if you are someone who is just teetering on the edge of faith and you're not sure that you believe Jesus is who he said he was and you're a little afraid to get sucked in because you think we're all a little crazy and you still have some questions. Absolutely, I want you to bring those questions to this series. Why, why would we worship a bloodied savior? And I don't blame you, we are a little crazy, but not because of the bloodied savior thing. And I hope, I hope that we begin to give you a satisfactory answer today. Why was the cross necessary? But even if you are someone who has been following Jesus since before you can remember, but this year, for whatever reason, has been filled with struggles, the kind of struggles the, the, the loss of a mom, the loss of a child, the loss of a home, just the loss of joy that you once had in your faith and you miss it. The kind of struggles that would cause any seasoned saint to question their own faith. So maybe you're not really asking the question, why was the cross necessary for Jesus? You already know that, you're already bought in, but you're asking that far more tender question, why is this cross necessary for me. Truth be told, I don't want the cross to be a part of the story. I don't think anybody does. I don't want it to be a part of Jesus's story, not of mine. Why, why must it be? There's a book called The True Story of the Whole World uh, that this sermon is deeply indebted to, and I hope that you will take the time to read it. It's not big and it's super helpful. Uh, and at the beginning of the book, the author tells a story 
about a young man who's standing at a bus stop and another young man comes up to him and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And then the author says, why do you think he's saying those words? Is he socially awkward trying to make a friend? Is he a spy passing on coded information? Or do they know each other and they're going over material for a quiz at school? Without the context, we can't know the meaning of the words. And the, the same thing is true of our faith. The cross is a blood-soaked mystery that we may never fully understand, but we will grossly misunderstand it if we don't have the full context, the full story. So we're gonna look at that story. N.T. Wright describes the, the story of the Bible as a, as, a, as a play, a drama that unfolds in five acts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. So in the first act, creation in the beginning, God establishes his kingdom in the world. He created us out of overflowing life-giving love. He was already a community within himself, God, Son, Holy Spirit. He didn't need to have more people, but he overflowed with love and wanted to pour it out. And so he created us to enjoy our presence and us to enjoy his for his glory. And so he created paradise for us to enjoy and charged us with cultivating this good creation. Populate the earth, have dominion over it. You're not just supposed to be farmers for the rest of your lives. Bring new creative goodness out of this already good creation. There is going to be Starbucks. There's going to be Microsoft Excel. There's gonna be internet movie database. God charged us with drawing goodness out of what was already good to be creative, literally to co-create with him as his stewards on earth. And he never forced us. He created us with free will with an awareness conscious of ourselves being apart from him and therefore able to choose to make him or ourselves the center of our universe. He didn't force us to love him. He gave us everything, every good and pleasurable thing there was. And because he loved us, he gave us the choice about whether or not we would choose to love him back. And so each day we had this choice to make. Do I make my will the center of my life or do I make God's will the center of my life? Do I make this story about me or do I make it about God? Do I follow in his footsteps or do I go my own way? But we weren't the only ones in the garden. The serpent, Satan in disguise, that very first rebel in heaven who wanted God's glory and power for himself, he was there too. And before we were made, when God ejected Satan from heaven, Satan wanted to do anything that he could to hurt God, but God is omnipotent, so he couldn't hurt God. So instead he came after us, God's beloved. And so the serpent went to the man and woman and he tempted them. He tempted them with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the only thing that God left off limits to us. And here's the thing, if they knew what that fruit was gonna do to them, I don't think that they would have been all that tempted. The only rule in the garden was basically God gets to define what is good, what good meant. And the creatures, the humans, us, have to take that on faith. And based on his generosity and love and providing his presence for us to walk with, the paradise all around them, I think they should have taken it on faith, but they didn't. And because that's not the picture the serpent painted. He painted a picture that God is holding out on you. You could be as wise and as powerful as God. You could be little gods yourselves. And the people take the bait. They disobey God because disobedience seems to promise something better. But sin never, never delivers what it promises, right? Adam and Eve had a simple choice. Do I obey God? Do I trust the God who loves me and has given me this paradise and continue in his will? Or do I 
put my will ahead of his? Do I follow in his footsteps or do I go my own way? And I think, I think all of us can get like a little bent out of shape here and feel like, okay, but, but I didn't do it. I wouldn't have done it. If I was in paradise, I wouldn't have eaten the apple or whatever it is, the mango, the whatever. I, I would have kept following in the footsteps of God. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I don't actually, I, I don't think that that is a fair assessment of who we are as human beings. I was once so annoyed that no one else in my family restocked the empty toilet paper roll that I hid all of the toilet paper in the house for a full day. Like if you're not gonna restock it, if you're gonna make me restock it, then you're gonna have to ask my permission every time you use it. So yeah, if that if fate of humanity had been in my hands, I think we would all still be doomed. Because the truth is, the first man and woman who because of how close they were to God, because they were without sin in their innocence, they had a better chance of making it through this temptation than any of us. And yet they failed. And then their kids failed and their kids failed. And the people stray further and further from the footsteps of God going their own way. So this, this is how sin entered the world. And with its suffering and toil and death, it's not God's fault, it's, it's our fault. But I think that we, uh, you know, have a tendency thousands of years later to, 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 instead of remembering how all of this took place and allowing that to humble us and allowing that to drive us back to our good creator, we shake our fist at God and say, why? But I have to imagine that God looks back at us through all of the horrors that have erupted on this earth and with tears of compassion in his eyes says, why? But despite, despite our rebellion, despite us inviting everything into this world that is not good, God still wanted to be with us, still wants to be with us, his creatures in his creation. And so he initiates a process of redemption, which brings us to act three, Israel. Abraham is a man who walks with the Lord and God makes a covenant with Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God is giving Abraham a mission. He wants the whole world. He wants all of us. He wants the whole world to see that living in covenant relationship to God leads to blessedness. He wants Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, to be a city on a hill, literally a display, a display people whose blessedness is so appealing to the rest of the world that it makes them curious about God. And so Abraham, his sons, their descendants are given this mission, live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, that other people look at you and they learn something about me, that other people look at you and they want to know the God that you live that way for. And I, I wish I could tell you it was up and to the right from there, but that is not the history of the people of God. Even Israel, even God's chosen display people continue to fail, even when they were trying their best. They couldn't live up to the standards of a perfect God. They needed cleansing, daily cleansing, but also corporate cleansing that happened on the rhythms of the church itself. So the people would bring a sacrifice to the altar of God as a payment for their sins. And I know that sounds medieval, but, but you have to understand that, that the violence of the Old Testament, the, the animal sacrifices, these were God's path of mercy because sinful man could not stand in the presence of a holy God without being destroyed by his holiness. But God doesn't wanna destroy us. He didn't wanna destroy us. And so he allows in his grace he allows for a substitution. Our death, our destruction brings him no pleasure. 
So he provides a way to reconnect. A debt of blood must be paid, but he allows for a substitution. An animal can be consumed by the fire for our unrighteousness in the presence of a holy God instead of us being burnt up. This is how people could be near to God in the midst of their own sin, but God, God didn't desire a mere temporary nearness. God has always desired a permanent reconciliation between us and him, but he couldn't, he could see that we weren't going to get there on our own, in our own devices. And so in, an, in, in the most extravagant act of sacrificial love, Jesus, who is one with the Father, came down to earth, put off his royal robes, allowed himself to be born in the skin of a man, in a stable, to, to a mother and father who did not conceive him. He allowed himself to suffer as a man, through the skin of a man, the nerves of a man, the brain of a man, the heart of a man. He was not divinely immune from pain. He took his cross for our sake. And, he, and the nails felt the same to him as they would to you or me. He paid the price for sin himself so that we would not have to pay that price for all eternity. His sacrifice is why he is called the Lamb of God. His death is the death of the Lamb, but because he is risen and because he lives forever at the right hand of God, he is the lamb forever, the eternal lamb. The sacrifice was once and for all. It never has to be done again. We will never be able to out-sin the eternally resurrected blood of Jesus. And he did all this. He gave himself up to the death that we brought into the world so that his beloved, that's us, sick, guilty, and wretched as we are, could have a cure for sin. And to take hold of this cure, we have only to put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins and the lordship of our lives. Essentially, we have the chance to unmake the decision that Adam and Eve made and say, Jesus, I will follow in your footsteps and not go my own way. Jesus, I will follow in your footsteps because my world revolves around you. Jesus, I will follow in your footsteps even if it leads me to a cross. And this is where we find ourselves today, the church in this in-between time, Christ has arrived, but he is coming back again. The kingdom has arrived, but it isn't here in full. New life has begun, but there is more of it coming. And our mission as followers of Jesus is to do what Adam and Eve and Israel and all of us were supposed to do but couldn't, to follow in his footsteps and not go our own way, to live lives full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because that's what God calls good then we should be able to take that on faith. Between his resurrection and the moment that he comes back to bring his kingdom in its fullness, our mission is to follow in his footsteps and to bring as many people with us as we possibly can. And maybe you're asking, but so how could we possibly do better now? Like how could we do better where our predecessors have continually failed? Because, because in the very last act of this great drama, God sets up residence in a place that we can no longer outrun. When we believe in him, when we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and the lordship of our lives, he makes his home inside of us, in our hearts. His spirit gives us the strength, his spirit in us gives us the strength to choose what he calls good. And even when we fail, because his eternal sacrifice is always present before God, it covers our sin and guilt. And so we try again, and we try again, not because we're trying to earn the love or the, the grace of God. We try again 
out of gratitude for grace that he's already given. So that's the context. That's the whole story from which we should understand our faith, or at least the cliff notes from start to finish. And for the, the, the modern Bible reader, I think uh, it's very easy to equate this history to something like a mere myth. This story can't be real, right? The, 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 the blood and the nails and the cross are just all a little bit too barbaric for me to, to have anything to do with. Like, that has nothing to do with me. Like, I shop at Publix. I, I work in digital media. I'm a vegetarian because I can't afford the meat at Publix. I didn't sacrifice my children to Molech in the fire like they did in the BC days. I don't need a cross. I don't need a cross to intervene for me. I'm just not that bad. I'm a Virgo, you know? Let's not be deceived again. Let's not be deceived again, because the enemy wants us to believe that we can define good and evil for ourselves and that we don't need to take God's definition on faith. Your sins are just little sins. It's just a little lust, a little greed, a little pride. You can stop when you want to, you can stop when you have to, but even if you can't, surely that's not worth, that's not worthy of being nailed to a cross, right? You're not really that bad, are you? Guys, those, those are the words of a liar whose entire existence revolves around wanting to steal, kill, and destroy. He has never had our best interests in mind. Not when he offered us that first taste of forbidden fruit and not now. He is the enemy and everything he invites us to is bad. We cannot make the grave mistake of believing we're graded on a curve. Sin has no curve. It is pass fail. It's always been that. There is sin or there is the complete and total absence of sin and anything short of the latter will fail at the judgment. And since we clearly can't produce the total absence of sin in our lives, none of us is good enough to be good enough for God. And that truth of the Christian faith is terrifying, or at least it would be, if not for the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is centered around the cross. That's the answer to the questions that we began asking today. Why, why was the cross necessary? Because the cross puts back together what sin and what our enemy has torn apart. Ephesians 1.3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered us with kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. And God, has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan at the right time. He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. What is torn, we put back together. What is rent, will be repaired. Are we still gonna sin? 
Yes, unfortunately, yes, we are. But the cross imputes the righteousness of Christ to us as a covering and the cross satisfies God's demand for obedience and the cross is the ultimate defeat of Satan and the cross is the solution to sin in the world and the cross is where we find freedom, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin that has kept us from following in his footsteps far, far too long. In the coming weeks of this Lenten series, we're gonna see how the cross satisfied each of these requirements for us to be reunited with God from, from each of these perspectives. And I hope you'll join us for every single week of it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift that you've given us in your grace, in your mercy, not just the freedom to choose you but freedom from the power of sin that, that, that has taken hold in our lives, that we actually do have it within us to do better. But even when we fail, Lord, your blood has covered us. You've given us a way to be reunited. Lord, we're so grateful. I pray during this Lenten season that we would be able to refocus ourselves on you, that you would become our center again, that we could realign our plans to what you've always had in mind for us, to what your plan has always been, and that you would give us the grace not only to be able to do those things, to be able to see, to repent, to change, to move toward you, but the grace of being able to enjoy that work as we do it. Help us find our joy in you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. Thank you for listening with us today. You can also watch our video services on YouTube or at summitconnect.org. And check out our show notes to link to our website and follow us on social media. Now go in God's grace and peace. We hope you join us next time.